0: Hello there, and welcome to Beyond the Mountains of Madness, The Keeper's Debrief, episode number one. So, I've just finished running my first um, session of Beyond the Mountains of Madness, a campaign that I've been prepping for, um, for years, essentially. Um... I first read it in full I think about 5 or 6 years ago but I was I was aware of it uh, before even and um I've been running wanting to run it for for as long as I've known about it essentially it's always been incredibly intriguing to me I've always been drawn to the scenery of it and and I think the whatever I knew about the story at the time So um about 6 months ago um I decided that now is the time um All of my players, unfortunately, are all remote. Um, We're spread out. Uh, I'm in New York. One is in Brazil. One uh, is in Paris, a couple in England, a couple in Denmark. Uh, That's my phone going off, of course. And um, I actually just recorded this whole debrief once, but I did it on the wrong microphone, so now I get to do it again, so it doesn't sound quite as horrible. Uh, I'm very much a noob when it comes to uh, sound setup and recording, so I hope you'll forgive me if my voice sounds horrible and all the recording is bullshit. Um, I wanted to do—I wanted to do this. I don't know. I guess it's, it's going to turn into a podcast or something about uh, this very niche subject, which is uh, how do you best prepare for and run beyond the mountains of madness. And what are the, the considerations that you have to uh, to, to do, to go through, to, to make the best of it? And what have my considerations been? And, and as we go forward, you know, to try and kind of dissect what it takes to make it uh, work and flow as, as a story and as a game. And, um, you know, the thing about Mountains of Madness is that it's, it's an immense campaign. Um, the new Horror on the Orient Express just came out, and that might now be the biggest campaign supplement ever made for a role-playing game. But Beyond the Mountains of Madness is definitely up there. It's a 436-page book, um, along with which you, as a player, and as a GM as well, as a keeper, you have to read um, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym and At the Mountains of Madness. So it's it's a sizable chunk of... Gaming material, and beyond that it's a sizable chunk of anybody's life uh, you know certainly if if you're going to play in it, but even more so if you're going to try and be the keeper of it um it's It's a phenomenal um piece of material pieces of material uh, and you kind of have to wrap your head around it to to make the best of it um i've I've always found um I've always found it incredibly compelling but also very scary uh, now, I should say before I go on that um, I um, I actually I got sick yesterday, and, and I had a fever, and um, I might be sounding a little rough around the edges, and every once in a while, I actually take a break from recording to eat some soup. Uh, you're welcome, by the way, that I take the break. So... Um, Mountains of Madness. It's it's an intense campaign. It's it's huge. It's super detail oriented, and there's so many NPCs and things in general just to keep track of. Um, which, on the one hand, I find uh, incredibly compelling, but it's also you know something that I fear a lot as a as a game master. I've never been um, very good at. First of all, pulling off NPCs, you know, making them interesting and, and making them compelling and whatnot. Some people can do that. I'm not one of them. I don't think. Um, I haven't never played in one of my own games. Um, so, so that scares the crap out of me, to be to be quite frank. Uh, and that, of course, I find compelling. And um, and then there's there's just so much backstory and so many little details, and you want to make sure you get it right because otherwise you're gonna you're going to screw yourself over for later. So I'll talk a little bit about, um, on this podcast, my experiences with, with preparing and, and what I'm kind of going through as I go through the game. I'm going to record multiple episodes and, and maybe even talk about various other kind of side things. Um, you know, and and the, you know, the only reason I'm doing this is kind of for my own, uh, for my own uh, entertainment I I've spent a long time preparing the campaign, and I, I just kind of fell in love with it. I, I love it as a story, and I love it as uh, a piece of entertainment. And I'm, I found uh, a lot of material from other people who've played through it that they've put online that really helped me, helped shape my idea of the campaign and, and helped me kind of uh, figure out how to go about certain things that otherwise I think uh, could be hard or at least would be not quite as transparent uh, as... Uh, As they could be, and um, and I'm kind of trying to draw on all of those things. Um, So I think, firstly, the most important thing um, if you're going to ever run this campaign, if you're thinking about running it, or you know, if you're already in the middle of it, and maybe I can't help you quite as much, but uh, for everybody else who haven't started yet, uh, who've thought about it, or who've heard about the campaign the biggest help you can really give yourself is to read through the entire campaign uh, front to back and then go back and read it again. Uh, There's so much stuff in this thing and you kind of have to know not everything, but you have to have a sense of so many different details that are spread a little bit out all over the place. It is a well-structured book overall, I think, but um, you'll want to know uh, and, and these are things that it doesn't seem important to begin with. And so I've, I've seen online uh, some keepers who, who've run it without reading through the entire thing, you know. And it doesn't seem important to begin with, but you, you kind of have to know who a lot of the, the players, I'm not talking about the, the player players, but who a lot of the, the characters who are involved in this story, who they are, what their motivations are, and what are they after, how do they behave and, and all, all this stuff. It's all tied together in, in a way. So you'll want to know who Barsmeyer Falcon is, you'll want to know what their purpose is, uh, you'll you'll wanna make sure that you know what how to set the tone, especially, um, and and you wanna know like when to tip your your hand and when not to. Um, I think with Barsmeyer Falcon as an example, uh, you know, we just played through, our first session was today, and we played um, through a couple of hours. We played through the first day and then the briefing on the second day, uh, September 2nd. And, you know, in, in that briefing, for instance, Moore, um, I think it is, um, tells everybody that there are three other expeditions. And in doing so, you're there's a real danger, you're going to tip your hand, that... Uh, there's two expeditions, and then a third one, uh, and the third one is special. But you don't want to do that because you you, you want to try and just make it everything seem everything is fine to the players. They shouldn't be worried about this Barsmyra Falcon thing, and I think I pulled it off. <laughs> we'll see. Um, but none of my players raised an eyebrow when I when I talked about it um, because I tried to do it in just as nonchalant a way as possible. And 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 these are the sorts of things that that I, I kind of want to talk about and. and and um and give some hints at as to um, as to you know very pragmatic advice really about how to um, how to get the most out of the campaign so um so yeah the, read through the campaign uh, be familiar with it and read about it as well so on if you go on to um which is an online Cthulhu forum and, and general site there's a bunch of uh, articles or some interviews with uh, the Uh, Chaz Egan um, or uh, sorry Engen um, who who wrote a a big part of the book and who also has uh, uh, I think written the second edition which is only available in German and French Damn You Chaosium Um, and just reading about the the intentions behind the campaign. It's actually very enlightening, and, and if nothing else, is fun. For me, I think the biggest enlightening thing uh, by doing that, and, and this is a little bit of a, a sidetrack, um, was really the realization that there is nobody evil in in this campaign. All people in this campaign are actually very human. The um, there is some cartoon characterization, I think, around, especially around Starkweather, and I I think that's toned down in the second edition. And I highly recommend anybody to tone it down. Um, that's my obviously that's just my read on it. I haven't played through the campaign, so anything I say is is a little bit up for grabs here. But um, the interesting thing is that everybody everybody's kind of there for a reason, and nobody's. Nobody's actively evil, uh, you know, the way that they might be in, in another Cthulhu campaign or game where you have cultists and all this kind of stuff. Everybody's really there to, to do something uh, that they have to do. Um, and I think that's especially important when it comes to Barsmaya Falcon um, or Falcon. They're, they're profiteers and they're not above using kind of um, rougher methods, um but even uh, if i remember correctly i should actually go back and read this this is probably going to happen in our next session but even the murder of uh commander douglas was not on purpose you know they didn't they didn't set out to mur- murder him uh, it just happened he fell in the harbor and, and and died and and it might seem like a murder to to the to the investigators but but it's not and of course um you know the players are free to to try and and figure out you know what's going on with regards to who's against who and whatnot, and that's a big part of the game, I think. And and knowing that in advance is also very important because you you want to make sure that you put enough emphasis on um, on the certain characters and the organizations and whatnot that are that are in play. But for me, I think I I prepare my players in a number of ways. Um, I sent them a physical package that was essentially the invitation to the campaign I should say that uh, because we're geographically spread out and a lot of people have kids and wives and you know, demanding jobs uh, it's really hard for us to get together and play um, and obviously we have to play online and uh, it's amazing it's even possible but nevertheless it, it is very hard and very demanding on us um, to do it so, so I wanted to really We've been playing the One Ring uh, last year and we had a lot of fun with that but it was only uh, four of us and I wanted to get as many as I could on board with this campaign and um, the way I did it was I I put together a package of uh, material uh, including a newspaper, a couple of newspaper clippings that I printed out. They are from the, um, let me just look up the name here. they're from the Antarctic uh, pack, I think it's called, for Beyond the Mountains of Madness, which is not in print anymore, but <clears throat> I may or may not have found a PDF online after years of searching. <laughs> you can buy it on eBay, but it's, it usually goes for around $100, and I just, I'm not going to pay that for, for something that essentially should be part of the game. The newspaper articles that are in the book itself are just a little rudimentary, and, and they don't look that good. And the ones that are in this Antarctic pack are actually very good. Um, they have both a front and a back side. You can print them out, and I printed them out on newspaper paper that I bought from Amazon, and it it was great. It was it was a it's it's a great handout, and um, so I put that in there. I put um, a, a map that I had printed, a, a period uh, correct uh, 1930s Antarctica map that I had printed at uh, Staples. I I wrote. Um, Two invitation letters. Uh, all this stuff is available on on the site. By the way, I wrote two um, invitation letters. One from Starkweather. One from Moore. The one from Moore was obviously much longer than the one from Starkweather and much more detailed. And I put together uh, a penguin USB drive. Yes, a penguin USB, um, where I put just a whole bunch of stuff on. I put. Um, I made some radio recordings uh, that I pulled from some audiobooks and radio plays and that kind of thing of At the Mountains of Madness and I pulled out all the all the right things so it didn't reveal too much but so that it kind of gave a sense of having listened to those radio broadcasts um, and I, I spiced them up with sound effects and, and stuff like that uh, and just a whole bunch of other stuff there's even um, the um, H.P. The Lovecraft Historical Society is that right? I think it is, CthulhuLives.org, uh, have some just some phenomenal material, and I've I've spent more money than I, I probably should buying things from there, um, including uh, their audio play uh, on a CD, and I don't even have a CD player, just to get um, the article that's in there. Um, I bought that, and... Um, uh, what was I going to say? Yeah, so... <clears throat> and I used... Uh, I used a uh, a lot of time just putting together this package, which, which I then sent out physically to uh, all of my players to invite them to the game, and and it was it was a great success. Everybody was on board, and um, um, that kind of gets us to where we are today. And I, I think you know if you have the option, especially if you're playing remotely, um, these kinds of things are are a lot of fun. I mean, they can be a little for me, it's a little pricey. You know, I ended up spending about I think it was eighty bucks. Sending just the invitations, just sending it, not including the materials, and certainly not including the time that I put into putting them together and whatnot. So, but um, you know, for me, it's it's uh, it's a lot of fun to, to get to hang out with my friends and um, and get to play through this kind of story. You know, it's it's a shame to only read um, role playing game campaigns; they really ought to be played. Anyway, the the reason I'm talking about this is because setting the expectations for the campaign, and this goes for any campaign, obviously. But I think in particular for Beyond the Mountains of Madness, um, setting the expectations is is the most important thing to begin with. Um, you want to be able to you want to make sure that people understand that this is a slow campaign, especially to begin with. It takes a while for it to get going. And it is a very meticulous campaign. You know, it's it's almost simulationist in its approach to being a real Antarctic expedition. Uh, it's it's overwhelming almost how much material is in the book uh, just on Antarctic expeditions and and conditions. You know, on the South Pole. Um, and you also want to give them. You know, my players. I'm I'm both lucky and cursed, I guess, because uh, my players are mostly D&D players. Uh, There's a little bit of rifts. We've played some other stuff. We played, obviously, some of us played The One Ring last year. But very few of them, I think, have ever played Call of Cthulhu, or if they have, very little of it. And none of them have read At the Mountains of Madness. So this is obviously phenomenal. Later on, we uh, uh, we brought on board another player, David, and David has read uh, at the Mans of Madness. He's played some Cthulhu before, and that's fine. He he's he can add uh, you know some some help with regards to setting the tone and stuff like that. But it is that's one of the concerns that I had. Uh, you know, it's a blessing in the sense that you get to really just give them all of this material through the campaign through the 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 device of the story really, you know, and they even get to read at the mountains of madness if if they want to, or at least the summary, which I'm sure several of them are gonna do. Um and then the curse of course is it you have to work much harder to to make sure that they understand what exactly you're going for. What's the tone of the campaign, what kind of characters are you gonna make, what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. And I, I went out of my way to to, um, to try and, and kind of just hammer that in at every turn. You know, we're playing, uh, so we're actually, the campaign obviously is written for Call of Cthulhu, but we're playing it with Trail of Cthulhu, and we're using um, these conversion notes that somebody put together, um, which otherwise I probably wouldn't even attempt it, so that's phenomenal. Thank you, uh, someone. Uh, they're available on the internet, very easily found, um, and um, so setting the the expectations um, for we're running it in purist mode and setting the expectations that this is not you know you're not lugging around shotguns and dynamite necessarily. You could, but it's really not about that. It's about existential horror. It's about cosmic horror, um, and and setting those expectations for somebody who has never played the game before I think is is very very important because otherwise you will get off on the wrong foot um, so so that became incredibly important uh, to me to make sure and I I actually what I did was I also took the players handbook from *Terror of Cthulhu and, and you know this is uh, not legal but nevertheless it served the purpose um, I redacted every mention that had to do with At the Mountains of Madness, um, and I gave a copy, a PDF copy of it, to the players to read through, which nobody did. Of course, oh, that's not true. Uh, some of them did, some of them, some of them didn't. But just kind of hit them from all angles to try and get as much information into their heads as you can, because this is a campaign that has so much information, and it's it's almost impossible to get everything. Um, Kind of into the game itself, and so and that goes for both actual information, you know who did what to who, but also also tonal information. How is this supposed to be played? What kind of characters are supposed to be in the game, and how do people react to things and, and all this kind of thing? It all becomes very important. Um, also, expectations, of course, just. Realistic expectations around how often are we going to play and how do we play? And, um, uh, you know, for for my own sake, um, giving them some idea that they will be on this expedition. It's going to take a long time before they even get to the ice. Uh, There are going to be a lot of characters there that they can interact with. And all of these things, all of which is important and all of which adds... um, you know something to to the way the players approach the material um which is important I for me I think the the most important thing is making sure that everybody understands that we're we're essentially telling a story together I think more so than any other type of game except maybe comedy um horror gaming is really about everybody kind of being there together and telling that story together, being open to <laughs> to the kind of stories that you're um, you're going to tell. You know, it's because because it's not about just waiting around until the next scene where orcs show up. Uh, you have to engage, and your character has to have some something invested in the world, and something especially for this campaign. You know, I read somebody somebody said it's it's very important that all the players have something that they want to returned from the ice for that could be anything that could be their wife it could be their mom it could be their reputation you know and of Cthulhu, one of the reasons I chose it was because it has that built into the system to some sense you have drive and you have um pillars of, of sanity and and those kind of serve that purpose but but you also want to make it clear to um to the players, that their characters should be a part of the world, uh, because if they're not, like horror hinges on um, people's acceptance that they can be vulnerable, and you need something, something in their characters that is vulnerable. Um, murder hobos of D and D renown, and of plenty of other games, um, don't have a home in Cthulhu, you know. Gaming, you have to have much more of a, a, a living, breathing character. Somebody who has background, somebody who has family, somebody who has a business that they that you can play up against. Both from a keeper's perspective, something you can push back on the player with, but also something that the player feels invested in the world with. Um, and these are just, you know, it's 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 what re- makes I think uh, horror gaming uh, interesting is is having players that are. Vulnerable in that way. Um, there's nothing worse than uh, I think investigators who, uh, you know, not players, investigators who uh, play it as if uh, it's uh, it's a game in which having a bigger gun is gonna is gonna get you out of the situation. Um, I mean, it's very easy from a keeper perspective to to um, you know to prove them wrong, but it's just not very interesting, you know. Um, preferably everybody's on board with the fact that what you're really doing here is you're sitting around a table and telling ghost stories. You know, in the same way that you would do around a campfire. And that ultimately the goal here is to entertain everybody and not just not just rake in the most gold or the most experience points. It's nobody nobody gets anything out of that in the long run. This is Cthulhu <clears throat> Gaming is much more about getting invested in in the story and the plot and the characters and in in the uh, in the goings ons and whatnot, that may be, you know, trivial knowledge to people who've played horror gaming for a long time. But honestly, I, I don't think it is. Um, I I did a lot of preparation for this campaign, obviously. And one of the things I did was I I tried to listen to other people playing Cthulhu games. There's a lot of uh, a lot of podcasts out there that are um, that are a couple of ones that are very good, but a lot of them. You know, you don't get the sense that anybody around the table are actually there to participate in a horror story. Um, and I, part of that, of course, is kind of the individual group's chemistry. And part of it is, I think, the either the misunderstanding or just the lack of understanding of uh, of what makes a good horror game. And. Uh, Part of it's also probably just the the lack of interest in in actually um, participating in in a horror game. I mean, it's uncomfortable in some ways, and, and you you have to expose yourself. I think much more than you do in <clears throat> in certainly in fantasy games. I mean, there's, there if you want to go for uncomfortable, there are many other games that could be even more uncomfortable. But but horror gaming is it. You're forced to um, to uh, open yourself up a little bit you're forced to allow somebody else to enforce on you a sense of dread, and that is very uncomfortable. It's also awesome. (laughs) So in terms of specific advice for Beyond the Mountains of Madness, now having covered, I think, just some fundamentals that I personally have to kind of consider as we were going into this, um, you know, both in terms of setting people's expectations um, in terms of what the story was going to be like, what the campaign was going to be like, but also how are we going to run this thing? How, um, you know, how do I expect everybody to behave? The, there's some pragmatic advice around uh, handling the volume of the campaign. First of all, this campaign has more NPCs than I think any other campaign that I've ever seen. Uh, it 's a phenomenal amount of of characters, um, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of sixty or seventy characters, maybe you have all of the expedition members themselves, which is i think thirty one thirty two plus um the players of course or the investigators you have the crew on board the Gabrielle, of which you know six i think it is have names, but there are forty on board the ship, I believe, or at least. Uh, a large amount of of crew members once you get onto the ice, or actually before that you have you know Rorick, you have the detective, you have various other smaller roles. Once you get onto the ice, you have a Lexington expedition, which of which you know you're probably only going to talk to a couple of them, but they're there nevertheless, and um, if you want to give the players the opportunity to start interacting with you know some of those other characters and you almost have to because otherwise you know Kyle Williams for instance is going to stand out and here I'm I'm speaking about these characters as if you know what I'm talking about I assume that you you have some idea otherwise go back read the book come back and and listen to this you know if if you don't give them more than oh here's Acacia Lexington and here's Kyle Williams that's going to be a little weird because Kyle Williams is just a pilot so so you kind of have to provide some filler material to cover over um, the, obvious, um, the obviousness of, uh, of what would otherwise tip your hand. Then when you move further in, of course, you have the Boschmire Falcon uh, expedition. And by that time, you, you will have had about you know, probably 50 or 60 people in your campaign. That's kind of a lot you know, for, for a campaign. And it's impossible. To uh, to give all of them their distinct character and give their give them a moment you know in the sun I think and and also unnecessary. Um, the the trick here of course is find out uh, first of all most importantly find out which one of these which ones of these characters are going to be important to the plot and. Those need to be highlighted in some sense, and you don't have to you don't have to overdo it, but they do have to be present from the beginning. So um, this is you know people like Halperin, for instance, uh, uh, he's going to be uh, part of the expedition when they go over the mountains, and so you want to make sure that they even know that he exists. And if there's a pilot in the in the group, then you know make sure that they have a little chummy relationship and whatnot. And for me, you know, some of this is stated in the book, and, and the problem is you don't really get a sense of, well, what do I do to, to make them like this person? Well, quite frankly, uh, being a little, you know, uh, obvious here, you could just say he's a very likable guy. It's amazing how, how easy, you know, it, has to, it could be. You don't have to play out scenes and try to be that character and then be likable. You know, and telling jokes and stuff like that. Um, you just kind of have to say, "This guy tells jokes all the time, you know, dirty jokes or whatever." And the players are going to accept that, and they're going to they're going to fill in the blanks in a way, you know. And they might not even remember that, but it it it's not so much that they remember the specific of what you said. It's more they put that NPC into a certain box somewhere in their brain if they remember that character. And you try to you go back and you reinforce that every once in a while. Um, and then, if there is a chance to have a little bit of a, a scene, you know, because traditionally, I think a lot of, uh, especially me, like I'm a I'm a big film nerd, and and I often come to this from a film perspective, and so it'd be easy, in a way, to imagine what a film scene would look like, where. Oh, here, you you got to you know, mingle with these people so you can become friends with them because they're going to be important later on. Well, that's an easy film scene to see uh, for your inner eye, but it's really hard to role-play a lot of the time. Um, and so I, my advice there is, you know, do it for the most part in the abstract. Um, and if you can, if you see your, your, your um, you know, if you see the opportunity, go in and just do quick little Mini scenes with them, but but don't force it. Don't don't spend too much time on it because it'll just a it'll be awkward and b um, it's not necessary. Um, the book also um, writes, uh, you know, is the way it handles Starkweather. I think is a big problem for the book. Talking about you know the NPCs um, Starkweather and more are the kind of the the main characters that are not the main characters, because obviously the main characters are are supposed to be the investigators, or at least that's how I sold it uh, to my players. I said, "Look, this is an uh, an expedition in which you're not the leaders, but you are the main characters." But beyond that, the main NPC characters, uh, you know, Starkweather and Moore, obviously uh, the biggest ones, and the. The way that Starkweather is portrayed in the book, I feel like is, is, and I've seen other people complain about this too, is very cartoony. It comes off as, he comes off as as a buffoon, essentially. And first of all, I have a hard time doing a buffoon as an NPC. Uh, Not out of principle, but simply it's hard for me to do without it becoming a comic. Um, so, So I'm... I don't have an answer for this. I haven't played through it enough yet that I can, I can tell you uh, how my plan works out or how my, more, more my intuition, my, my sense of this character works out. But I'm, I'm going to try and soften him up a lot and make him much more approachable and, and whatnot. And just have his, um, in a way, the, um, his incompetence around the organization of the uh, expedition it doesn 't lead to much other than um, some some interesting things some interesting scenes, some tension around the expedition but it 's not important that he 's a buffoon what 's important is that uh, he 's overreaching a little bit he 's getting a little old and he's he 's reaching for his his last big hurrah and i think uh, I think that 's perfectly reasonable to to express without having him become um, a, a a bumbling cartoon character um... and so you know we'll see i'm kind of interested in in the uh... the first couple of episodes here where starkweather is not supposed to be available um, i'm gonna try that and we'll see how that plays out but it is it is a little hard to that's the kind of thing you can write in a book and then you know how do you actually how do you enforce that in the game in a way where the players don't feel like they're being cheated out of, out of what, they, what they're trying to achieve if they want to talk to Starkweather? And with regards to more, um, the, the way he comes off in the book, he, he seems very stressed. And I the dialogue they've written for him, it it doesn't, it doesn't really do a lot for me. Um, I don't, I don't really. When I read it, it doesn't sound right to me. It comes off uh, a little bit too stiff. He calls Starkweather Mr. Starkweather, that kind of thing. Um, and I think you know this is not a, a a novel tip at all. But in terms of making, uh, in terms of making the characters come alive a little bit more, there's a lot of stuff in in the book that you're supposed to read out loud. One of the advantages of, of playing remotely is you can take that stuff, and you can put it on the screen, and the players won't know the difference. So traditionally, when you're sitting behind a screen around a table, you have to look down into the book to, to read out what, they've, what, they're, um, what the characters are supposed to say. Uh, and even if you try to paraphrase it, you still, you know, I find it very hard to not have to look down on the book all the time, and, and it, it distracts a lot. But playing remotely, you can actually just put the text right next to the Skype window and um, it's much easier to refer to the text while you're talking and looking seemingly at the players. So that's a huge advantage. And if you do play remotely, definitely take, uh, take advantage of that. Um, I did today. There was a lot of stuff I needed to, to say and I, I actually felt like it, it came off much better than I thought it would when they were talking to, to Peabody and McTie and even when um, when Moore was saying stuff that was pre-scripted. Um, it, I think it's important that you don't read straight from from the campaign. I think that's a one-on-one you know, game mastering trick, but um, I think it is very, very important. But beyond that, if you can actually read it and paraphrase it without breaking eye contact or with, at least without making it seem as if you're reading it, it works so much better because one of the big problems with this campaign again is it, it there's a certain linearity there's a certain scriptedness to many things and that is an incredibly hard thing to deal with you know we we were playing the one ring last year and there were a couple of times where the scenario said the players are gonna stake and instead they sag and suddenly you find yourself on thin ice and you have to you have to think fast. Um, and, and that's going to be the case here as well. And, and in a way, those are the moments that are interesting for GM because suddenly you're not running just through a script and, and you actually get to kind of exercise your imagination a little bit. It happened in our first session as well um, with, with um, when the reporter, um, Thomas McLugal, went to talk to Danforth uh, or at least he was trying to figure out where Danforth was, and the problem was that that is not in the campaign. As far as I remember, I'm going to I'm going to look at that now. But I don't think that that is in the name. It's just like he went to a rest home, and then somebody else that you can talk to, I think it's more, uh, says, well, he escaped from that rest home. But the rest home itself is not named. It's not Nothing is said about where it is uh, or how he escaped or what the doctors might say about him if you were to seek them out and 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 so, in a way like as a, as a game master or as a keeper you're you're now forced to suddenly um, just put up a wall you know because you don't have information here and and that to me is is the worst you know um, I hate doing that, but at the same time, you could spend all of your time just diving into these these holes, and part of that will you know, it's worth it just because you get some, uh, some, some role-playing out of it and some fiction, some story. But a lot of it is not because at this point you're also, and this is our first session, we're really just interested in moving the story along um, and, and starting you know, get everybody else on board. None of the other players at this point were really involved with the story. Um, and, and so you want to just start moving things along a little bit, and, and it becomes a little hard. But but that's definitely also worth just keeping an eye on. Um, in that case specifically, uh, figure out an answer for that. Where, where was Danforth? What do they say about him? Uh, and is that information even available? Um, another thing that honestly I hadn't really thought about, I, was, I thought about a little bit that I was probably going to have to push on them a little bit to, to get them to ask about, um, the old, the other expedition members. The thing is, the book it feels like makes kind of the assumption that people, um, you know, the players have read the information and they know exactly what to ask for now. You know, what happened to Dyer? What happened to McTy? What happened to Paybuddy? Um, but they don't. And especially my players, they're new to investigative uh, role playing, so they're not going to be as inclined to ask these kinds of questions. And so I pushed a little harder than I probably normally would. But, um, and I think that's fine. I, I think in in terms of you know again, uh, Trail of Cthulhu, just to make a side note, Trail of Cthulhu approaches you know almost the story as if. What if everything is just an automatic success in terms of getting information? And in that sense, you know, uh, and this is not entirely, I don't totally agree with myself on this, but in that sense, why, why don't you push some of that stuff a little bit in their direction to, to give them information that they might otherwise not have had? And it's a fine line. It's a fine line between uh, stepping in and running the game for them and, and just gently pushing things towards them and see if they if they bite in this case um, I wouldn't normally push this hard Um I, mean, I essentially said look you can also do this um, the game I think the campaign makes the assumption that the players think about it I think there's some good information in there I mean you I think you need to know about Danforth um, if you don't know about Danforth uh, once you're on the ice and, and things start you know really happening you don't have that information; it's not available to you. Um, so how do you how do you connect the dots and how do you make that story come together and be interesting? Um, then you have to kind of um, patch it at that point, and and that's not really. I don't think personally that that's really worth it. I think it's much better to to upfront kind of address that. Um, you know, interestingly, nobody asked about Dyer. So we'll see about that um it's going to come up again, i th- think right because they 're going to talk to Rorik later on and and, and Rorick had dyer 's manuscript and he 's going to talk about dyer so so that 's fine um i didn't push on it because uh, i didn't didn't want to overwhelm that first part um and that's I guess that's about it for now next time we're um the we stopped right after the morning briefing uh, everybody was giving the given the various lists of stuff to do and one of the players who I pull apart or pulled aside apart pulled aside after the game uh, I gave him the the task for more to go and take care of commander Douglas when he arrives on the 6th but for now we're on the second and the next part is the manifests now I'll say this before we run it, because I actually want to have a record of this. Because this is, the Manifest, when you read about people who played Beyond the Mountains of Madness, it's one of the most controversial parts of the game. A lot of people feel like it's a complete waste of time. It feels like many groups can't even get past this part, and the campaign strands before they even even try. I feel like the way it reads and what I've read from people who have uh, made it work it actually feels like it's integral to the campaign. Consider that the the story that it tells is both it tells about Starkweather's preparation and some of the things that have gone wrong. So that's one thing. It also gives them an insight into just kind of the simulation as part of it, which is not a bad thing at all. You you go through that list and you're gonna find a lot of very interesting little things and and beyond the fact that it it adds to you know the overall sense of being on this antarctic expedition and how important it is to get all the details right you also actually tell the story of what do you bring on an expedition like this what's important uh, you know because people wouldn't know um, necessarily so so i find it interesting just for that but then beyond that you also you really want to involve the players in the expedition like they now they have something involved like they're involved with the the loading of, of gear and everything. Like they it's not just a matter of walking onto the ship, the ship takes off and, and there you are. And so so it really you know it really sets the tone, I think, for for how an expedition like this comes together where everybody everybody chips in and everybody has to be a part of it. And and that's also very important. You could skip over it, um you know, if if your group is much more action oriented um, and they need things that to, to be happening, I don't think it's the case with our group. I actually think our group wants to role play, or at least it's a little split between between the various people there. But um, I actually think it's going to go pretty well. the The only thing I'm afraid of is probably that it it might take a little too long. I'm not sure. You know the. The beginning, to quote Dune, is a very dangerous time in a campaign, and you want to make sure that you don't like the thing doesn't sink right off. It really, you know, it needs it needs to be able to to carry itself for a while before all of the various threats of the story and the tension of of all the relationships really start to grow. And so, what I could be afraid of is that they go through the manifests and that takes an entire session and at this point they've already spent eight hours of, of time of their lives creating the characters running the first part of the, the session we just ran today and then also further four hours just going through inventory and then on session three something else can start to happen um, because I don't want them to drop out it's very easy to say I'm sorry I can't make it and then you're never on board again but it, it seems like they're dedicated to it, and, and I hope that's the case. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be actually fun to go through the manifests. Um, there's there's some chances there to also kind of, you know, just come up with some some crazy characters if it's appropriate, you know, for the scene, whom they have to talk to on the phone or whatever, and and um, just give them a sense of of the the chaos that reigns um, as this expedition gets ready for the ice and and it also and and that's really important It also you start to build the paranoia so currently there's a couple of threats of paranoia in a, in a in a sense right you have you have Danforth who's missing you don't know where he is now I think they might think that he's gonna sneak on board this expedition vessel which is of course not the case Um. So we'll see. I, I, they haven't said anything about it yet. Um, it, the, the thing that kind of hit me a little bit when I, we were going through this session was actually, wait, he escapes the mental institution. <laughs> it, it feels like such a Hollywood trope almost, like you're, you're expecting to be part of a slasher film. Um, it, it feels almost too strong. It's, I, I feel like he should, he should have been in, in the care of his family or something, and they just haven't, they lost track of him. But now the damage is done. Uh, which is fine. But then there's also Getney, who's lost. And there was an interesting theory, uh, which was what if Getney, this was forwarded by one of the players, uh, David, what if Getney had survived on the ice? Um, which, of course, is not the case, but it is an interesting theory for them to kind of have rattling around that Getney could still be there. Uh, I think surviving two and a half years on the Antarctic uh, would be quite the feat. Um, just walking around, but but certainly not impossible. You know, if you had the the supplies for it. But I, I, I forget now. I actually do think it's in the book. I think it's in the summary report that Moore wrote that me could be a possible suspect. That's a great thread because it's not true. But now you've already set up something beyond the fact. This like it's a little bit more abstract. If you're just asking them, you should go to this camp. Because obviously Dyer and the team went to that camp, and everybody was dead, and they said it was the blizzard, and, and that does seem a little odd, but it's not that odd, and and quite frankly, I don't think if this had been a real story, I don't think it today people would certainly come up with conspiracy theories, but I don't think that would be the case in the thirties. I think they would be they would be trusted on their word uh, at least to some extent. But having Gedney missing is is a great. It's a great story, and it um, so far they haven't they haven't looked into GetMe even just to find out like who is he, and it's good because I I actually don't know <laughs> I forget um, I'm gonna have to look up that information for next time just so I have it on hand. Anyway, uh, so so those are the two big I think uh, kind of paranoia things that can be running alongside the campaign for quite a while. Then you're going to add to that Starkweather's lack of preparation, which I I don't know whether to upplay that or to downplay it. I I think I'm going to downplay it a little bit. I'm going to see what they come up with. I'm going to play it by ear. Are they are they going to blame Starkweather or are they going to blame it on just general chaos and that sort of thing? Um, and then of course, um, you know, next time let's see we have. Uh, The dog cages go awry, the aircrafts arrive, Douglas arrives, Um, I forget, so I don't know if there's anything in the book about the, oh yeah, Douglas arrives on the 3rd, he doesn't arrive on the 6th, and that's, so this is me finding out what we're going to do next time. (laughs) Um which means that the player, he was briefed on the 6th, which is actually when he dies, but he does arrive on the 3rd. So it's interesting why, I don't know if there's an explanation for that mismatch in here, but um, maybe maybe uh, Douglas was supposed to meet with Starkweather on the 6th and, and he just arrived three days early. So so that's worth looking into. Um. And then, of course, Lexington's big announcement, um, Starkweather responds uh, to that. Um, So I'll have this discussion up front here. I think we're going to cover probably most of this and probably go into the fifth and maybe even the sixth. And I I hope to almost go, if we could go through Chapter 2 next time, that'd be great. I don't think that's going to happen, but that could be great. Uh, Just to kind of get a move on, Um, I think the the manifests are probably going to take an hour and a half, maybe even two hours to go through, so... We'll see how much time we have, but the Starkweather Starkweather's response to Lexington announcing her departure is kind of an interesting thing because I'm not sure what to do here. Um, there's the find me a woman uh, more part of that story in which Charlene uh, Whitson gets brought on board, but the thing is, the only beyond the fact that whatever it adds in terms of. Um, it adds a little bit to to Starkweather's character that he's willing to, um. To to break his rule, so to speak, by bringing a woman on board just to to. To counter Lexington, and that of course is a story, but I don't know how big it is, if it's really worth going after. Um, and other than that, you know, Charlene Whitson, she doesn't have a role in the story really, and and of course you could make that role, but. Um, I do have a couple of people in the group that are that are ladies' men, uh, so to speak, and so maybe it 's worth being ha- her on board and kind of having her away- available for them to to play some scenes around you know so uh, i 'll probably end up doing that mostly because um, I am afraid of changing things in the campaign out of fear of not quite understanding all the repercussions that that would have um so I'm, I'm very cautious around changing it. I've seen other people who are much more willing to, to throw out things wholesale. And I, I do have a couple of those sitting around. And There's, there's a, a couple when we start getting near the, the ice itself that are I'm going to start seriously considering just to f- see what that would do to the story. I also, um, just on a side note, I actually have two uh, volumes of the three-volume German edition of uh, Beyond the Mounts of Madness, which, of course, is the second edition. Um, and I know a little bit of German. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, not that good, but I can parse my way through some of it. I, there are some major changes in that um, version of the story, and there are a couple of them that I find very interesting, specifically the one around Dyer's text and when the players are given access to that. Because as it stands in the written campaign, it stands to be a huge spoiler. You know, you, you give them the text and then you go and play through what they just read. Um, and and that's always sat a little wrong with me. But on the other hand, playing through it, going over the mountains and then giving them the text is also a little weird because now they're sitting on, in, in the greatest discovery of mankind, reading a book. And, and that's always also sounded a little odd. So I'm not sure what to do. Luckily, I, I should have enough time to, to think about that for a while. Either way, I'm sorry for droning on for almost an hour now, um, and I'm sorry that uh, I'm sure that I'm I'm very boring to listen to. But um, I hope that this could be of help to you know one or two people out there who, um, who decided to take on this campaign, this massive, massive campaign. It's been something I've been looking forward to for a long time. Uh, I've been preparing um, quite a lot over the past six months, but I've actually been keeping notes over the last couple of years. Every once in a while, I would get the, I would smell the blood, and I would uh, go out and, and you know seek out as much information about it as I could, and, and kind of take that and put it into my my campaign document. So I have a lot of notes um, from other people and and uh, ideas and whatnot, and. I'm gonna try and, and see what I can milk out of those to to make sure that we get the most out of this campaign. It's it's a really great campaign, but it's very challenging in, in sections. And uh, you know, as I said before, the NPCs alone, I think, are, are gonna be one of the big challenges for me to to try and make sure that there is a sense of who's on this journey with them and having them be able to interact with them, but also having story revolve around the players or rather the investigators so um, that's that's it for now I guess uh, I'm gonna go and rest my my sick throat and uh, and we'll see if this turns into anything and uh, if it does um, you know look out for the uh, next episode episode 2 I'm also gonna try I, I recorded the games or uh, so far the first session I'm going to try and put those out as a podcast as well, and, and make them available to people somehow. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, some people will find it entertaining, albeit a very small contingent of of people. Uh, but that's one of the great things about this hobby. You know, it remains a niche hobby, and uh, and that's kind of a kind of a nice thing to have uh, in this world. Thank you for listening, and. Um, I'll see you on the ice.